Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Digital Podcast. I'm Ian Broom and I'm joined as always by directors Mel Kanarek and Chris Diamond. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hi, Ian. We're joined today by two very special guests. We've got Ivan Phelan, Senior Research Fellow at Sheffield Hallam University, who specialises in using VR for healthcare, and Jake Hapgood, Director of Education Partnerships at Sumo Digital. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Um, we are going to be uh, talking to you about all things gaming, really, but um, uh, you, you both previously worked together, right? We did, yes. Yes. Uh, not too long ago. Um, and, you know, uh, it was certainly back when you were a student as well, Ivan. That's it, yeah. It's, it's been a, a long road. But yeah, we've been, been from doing uni to, to working together. It's been great, really. Yeah. And uh, Ivan, I worked with you briefly as well for a, yeah. a, a wonderful year we had together. Yeah, and, that's um, true. It was at the start of your VR adventure, I like to think. I think so, yeah. God, it's, it's kind of a, it's like a reunion. I, I'm, who are we going to pull in next? It's going to be you. <laughs> <laughs> Could be anyone. Do I get any credit for your success? Oh, I do. I think there was a lot of inspiration there, really. <laughs> you know, you, you, you were there cheering me on at the start. Go do it. That's more or less all I did. You're correct. So, <laughs> Mel, you're going to kick off with the first proper question. Well, I think based on that, we need to know more about uh, what Ivan does and then how he and Jake work together and what Jake's doing now. So, Ivan, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, happy to. Um, I suppose kind of to sum things up, I, I do a lot of work with uh, VR and healthcare. Um, so we've been doing projects that range from helping amputees to learn how to use a prosthetic arm. So they put on the VR headset and they'd see a representation of their arm, but they'll be able to control it the same way as you would with a prosthetic arm. So they have sensors on, on their arm. So we have a kitchen where they have practical tasks and they, they pick up things around the kitchen. And we're finding it's been quite useful for um, training amputees, especially because there's a huge rejection rate. But from that, we've been looking at things to do with um, pain reduction for, for burn patients after um, very bad burns. And we, we, we got some good results from that. So it's, it's the distraction and the immersion from VR and kind of getting them so engaged in it that the, the pain is kind of secondary. You won't get rid of the pain completely, but you will you'll make it a lot more tolerable. And we're continuing to work on that. We just actually put in an application uh, two days ago. So hopefully get that to continue on that. But wide ranging from upper limb to lower limb rehab and we have a couple more projects that we're currently working on. Uh, I can go into detail uh, later. But um, when we, we were working together, myself and Jake, we kind of did a lot of stuff with Games Britannia, especially. And uh, that was uh, very memorable. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of gets a, a brief update of what we've kind of been doing. Jake, what, what were you doing when you and Ivan were working together? Um, oh, well, so I suppose I, I first met Ivan as a master's student on the game software development course at Sheffield Hallam, where I was, I was teaching on the course, but I don't think I ran it at that stage. Um, so yes, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've known Ivan for many years, sort of seen his career develop, um, working sort of, uh, initially in sort of sports science, uh, and then sort of moving into the sort of healthcare area. And, you know, I, I'm a massive fan of the work that he does. Um, I suppose I've always been proud that I work in an industry that, you know, can give people a lot of fun and enjoyment. But what Ivan does is, is really on another level with games. And, um, you know, it's, it's incredible to see games used and applied in that way. So, uh, it, you know, it's been wonderful to see his career develop and see where he's got to now. So, Jake, people know you uh, from Hallam's games courses and i yes. think steel minions as well but you've recently moved on haven't you i have um although i mean it's, it's fair to say that you know i've moved back to where i came from essentially um so i mean i came to sheffield in the mid 90s to work for a, a company called gremlin graphics um and was a sort of playstation one developer back in those days um, and uh, I've worked for Gremlin, Infograms and Sumo before. Um, but uh, the last sort of 10 years, I spent most of that um, working for Sheffield Hallam on their, their games courses um, and leading the, the, the MSc course there towards the end. 
running various research projects and and as you say the the steel minions game studio as well um but more recently i've moved back into the industry um and am director of education partnerships at uh, at suma digital where you know now I, I can have an influence that sort of extends just beyond one university and interact with a whole range of different universities um, and I'm the education advisor for Tiger, which is one of the uh, industry trade bodies. And sort of through that, I, I can sort of start to have a, a bit of a, an influence on the industry as a whole, which is, is something I've, I wanted to do. That's fantastic. I want to come back and, and talk a bit more about that link between the industry and education and some of the initiatives that you've got going on. But, but before we go there, Ivan, it, it's really interesting to me that you started off as a learning to be a games developer mm. but now you're applying virtual reality to the healthcare scenario can you tell us about how that how that journey went what steps you went to end up where you are now yeah it's, it's even it's even a little bit even more complicated than that you go back a bit further because i used to be a builder and uh, used to do mass concrete and then i got, then i got into doing uh, software engineering and then from that, um, to do uh, the games development course. But um, when I worked with, with Ian, um, we were working in a shoe. We used to do um, some work where we interfaced with, um, with businesses. And I kind of looked at, at um, some companies, but one of the things that came up was to work with um, some clinicians. And just from having conversations with clinicians and seeing kind of unmet needs, conversations started happening and we kind of said, maybe this technology might help and maybe this might help. And we never tried to, to force anything, um, but we kind of started seeing ways that we could work together. And it's kind of funny, it's, it's kind of, once you start doing it, it's very hard to, to kind of um, not look at solutions for healthcare now, because you just have lots more com- uh, conversations that, from doing one project, it leads on to another one and another one. And you can say, oh, that worked for that, but maybe you have something that might work here. But it never always, like a lot of time it starts off, we look at one solution, but then after actually speaking to the, to the staff and to the patients, we actually kind of go down a different route. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's, it's a very rewarding job, to be honest, for my dream job, I think, to be honest. And I'm, I'm delighted that it kind of went that direction. Yeah, I, I'm, maybe I'm just, I mean, you, you were the first person that I ever knew that had a virtual reality headset, Ivan. You were there <laughs> right at the beginning. I think the first time I saw the, 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 the first Oculus that came out was at MozFest, you know, the Mozilla Foundation Festival. And I literally, like that week, I think, I met you for the first time. <laughs> and and you just you just got one of the developer kits, mm. um, and you were trying it out, and we were all feeling nauseous. You know, yeah. The uh, roller coaster demo, um, but you were there right at the beginning. You were there, you know, at pioneer of well, let's take, you know, this new generation, the first of this new generation of of consumer grade virtual reality kit, and try and apply it to different things. Um, so so you're, I mean. From an innovation process point of view, you know, there's a difference between technology-driven and challenge-driven innovation where, you know, in, in challenge-driven, you find a problem and you try and solve it with whatever the most appropriate means are. But from your perspective, you had this technology, you know, virtual reality, and you were trying to apply it to, to see whether it fit, whether it provided a new way of thinking about some of these challenges, I guess. Is that- yeah, to, to an extent. I think when we started off, it was kind of like, oh, this technology is amazing. We need to use this. Like I was probably telling everybody that I met, you need to try out this thing. It'll make you yeah. feel a bit nauseous at start, but it's worth it. Um, but it's, it's, it was a bit rocky at the start, I think, with the, the nausea and that. But um, as things went on and, and as we kind of started doing more and more projects, I could see that a lot of people are like, oh, maybe VR for this, and like, ah, I don't think it actually fits. So we kind of went away, we got a little bit more picky, I guess, of like, instead of just like, we need to do more VR, we kind of wanted to make sure that it was actually going to do, mm. you know, a difference, like. So there's a lot of projects that have been kind of come up where we kind of said, actually, it's not, it's not a right fit, like, we'll just be, we'll be forcing this. And mm. so I'm kind of glad that we kind of, we've kind of got to that point where we're kind of a little bit more, 
mindful of what's the what's what's required. Right. Yeah, so there's a set of criteria around a project that you where you think actually VR might provide a solution here. That so I, I guess what we found from I think the Burns project we learned a lot from that. We found that there was two things from the Burns project that it's the distraction from pain, and and we found that that was that was quite powerful um, regarding that project. But then we, we found then when we went to other projects, that was one of the things, do we need to distract people from something? Be it the pain of exercise for, for rehab, or be it the pain for um, dysphagia, for swallowing. And we're kind of looking at those kind of things like, right, okay, we have something that's distracted, but now we need to make something that's engaging. But we, we don't want to just make, oh, here's a game, it's a platform game, or whichever type of game. We have to look at the limitations of the, the issue that we're looking at. So say, for Burns, the simplest thing was when you went in and did some observations, you could see the person's lying down, could barely move their head. They could only hold one thing because they had bandages on using one side of them. So it was like, right, the game has to work with head movement, has to work while you're lying down. So we, we look at all those limitations and we build around that. And the same for, for the other projects for the upper limb. They're, they're, you can't see this because it's an audio podcast, but then the physios were reaching behind their back and showing this is kind of movements that require. So we looked at that and we thought, it looks like you're going for a quiver. So then we thought a bow and arrow game. So it's kind of looking at the natural motions that, and I guess it's that, like if it doesn't fit in a kind of a way that we can make a kind of a game that feels natural to the movements that we require, um, we kind of don't do it. Right. And that comes through observation. You really need to get close to the player. hundred percent. Yeah. I, like workshops are, 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 are brilliant, but we find that you have to do some observations. You have to go in and actually like see the patients where they're going to be treated. And it's kind of almost, it's one, it's, well, it is one of the main things we do at the start of each project. Like we usually write your application and we have a good idea what we're going to do. But sometimes we have laid out some ideas and we think, oh, we'll do this and we'll do this. But then once we do an observation and we talk to the physios or to the staff members, it usually course corrects a whole different direction. Right. And it's kind of like, it's, 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 it's really nice to kind of, it's a nice process, I suppose. It's like we, we do work together a lot with all the hospitals. And, and if it wasn't for the staff, like we, we'd have nothing really. And, and the team we have is amazing as well. Like, some really good uh, uh, artists and, and developers and researchers now working on the team. So we're quite small, but we're getting there. So it's really interesting to me how I think I think a lot of people who aren't in the sector think about gaming and gaming technology, and it's in its own little bubble, and it's just oh, you know what what people do on their computers or, or on their phones or whatever, and it's they don't see this crossover of the technology into so many other applications because we're seeing it, you know, being used in manufacturing. Um, you see it being used in training scenarios for all sorts of different people. You see it being used in uh, design visualization and, and co collaborative design, all those kinds of things. Um, and I wonder if, you know, is there a need for gaming to um, sort of, break out of its reputation what do you think jake definitely yes um i, I mean I, th I think people need to understand gaming as just a medium and and that you know in the same way as you can have books that are about you know architecture or books that are novels or books that are um you know uh, comic strips it's it, it's it's the same with games and you can use them in different ways, apply them in different ways. And actually, you know, uh, uh, the kind of work that Ivan's doing um, is in many ways very different and very separate. And we, we almost need, you know, uh, uh, other terms other than game to group together all of these different things that we tend to just, you know, ascribe the same label to. So, yes, I... I, I I'd encourage people to to sort of take a deeper look at games and and see the range of different things that are being done with them. Isn't it true that there are more Unity developers outside the games industry than inside the games industry now? I think I remember reading that somewhere. 
I've certainly heard things like that said around around Unity and uh, and Unreal, and that the you know the applications outside of the game industry are certainly growing. That provides a nice segue for me. Sorry, Ian, but I was going to say, you know, the sorts of skills that you learn working in the games industry are therefore applicable to a lot of other industries as well, aren't they? And Jake Sumo has got a big initiative on at the moment to attract more people into the industry and, and skill them up. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So uh, the Sumo Digital Academy is, is sort of one of my main initiatives at, at Sumo. Um, I, I mean, it's it's a talent development program, uh, and the idea is to sort of develop new pathways into the games industry. So um, I suppose, you know, in terms of uh, new initiatives for the industry as a whole then, um, one of the things I've been working on since I, I went back to Sumo is uh, apprenticeships. So the games industry hasn't had uh, formal apprenticeship programs, uh, which are specifically designed for our industry and development roles within that industry. Um, and we've been working together with other game developers to put together um, you know, the first uh, one directed at game programmers um, for level seven. So it's sort of a postgraduate apprenticeship. Um, and using that as a way of reaching out to different disciplines. Um, I, I suppose, you know, uh, we um, have traditionally recruited a lot of fantastic students um, from uh, games courses. Um, but the, the one thing about games courses is that they do tend to have a limited gender balance. So, you know, it tends to be very male oriented in terms of, of the students studying those courses. Um, what we'd like to do is introduce routes which would allow us to, you know, reach out to uh, graduates of other courses and, and bring in talent um, where we can have apprenticeship programs that help us train people and adapt their skills for our industry. I think you know, one of the things that strikes me is when you talk about careers in the games industry, it's, there, it's not just coding, is it? There's a lot of opportunities for artists, uh, for sound creators, sound engineers, for story writers. It is really the, the complete gamut of creative careers. Is there a way that we can make that more obvious to people as well? Sure. I mean, I think um, when people think of the games industry, when they're you know, not coming from inside it, they're often imagining uh, a game designer sort of sat in a room uh, on their own, coming up with all the ideas, creating everything about that game. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth uh, in terms of you know, the big uh, kinds of games that come out on console platforms these days. You know, we have hundreds of people working on, on games with expertise in many many different areas so you know even if you take for example the the art behind a game or even the character art you know you, you've got one artist sort of building a skeleton and uh you know, rigging a character you've got another cut artist sort of building the meshes associated with that you might have another artist building the textures associated with that character it's, so there are Real small specialisms in every stage of the game development process um, for those big kind of games, um, but also you know, like you said, you know, you've got narrative designers helping to write scripts, you've got audio engineers, you've got musicians, um, and and that's just sort of you know on the creative side. But you've also got you know you've got lawyers and accountants, you've got um, admin staff, you've got a whole group of people that come together to, to create uh, a game. And I think one of the, one of the uh, exciting things to see in Sackboy, which is, is one of the games that we've released recently, is just on the credits. If you look through the credits of that final game, you'll see all the different people involved in the game. And it, it includes all the people uh, from the sort of the back office who've worked on, you know, the finance and, and those parts of the game. Um, and they're sort of included in the credits as well. So if you want to know exactly how many people it involves, have a look at those. But that, that's, that's, I mean, it just struck me that that's one of the big differences between the games industry and the film industry, isn't it? Because everybody has seen the credits of films because you sit through a two-hour film and the credits come up. And so everybody can see all of the people and watch it scroll past. And increasingly, you know, Hollywood films nowadays have got little Easter eggs at the end of the credits. So people are even more incentivized to sit through all the thousands of people that have worked on a, on a, on a big production. But, but games has a, a, you know, 
a similar number of people there's hundreds of people work on these games but you only see it if you complete the game and how many people really complete the game <laughs> well um i think on a lot of games these days you can access the credits so uh, on Sackboy, you are able to access i've not completed the game yet uh we're still working on that but uh, have looked through the credits i know it's not a bad thing that people don't complete the game i mean you know the for value for money in terms of time investment over a uh, purchase price i think games are fan, you know fantastic much better value than than uh, than films but um but yeah it's getting to the credits is such a big deal in games isn't it this, uh, this is something that comes up that's come up before hasn't it we, we've talked about this a lot not in not in the context of games it's usually other professions like software developers and the mm. different variants um this idea that people uh can be even get to university at that kind of level and still not quite know what jobs are available to them uh, what careers are available to them um, and in terms of those like the credits my my eight-year-olds my twins are uh, just absolutely adore zelda breath of the wild just love it and i made a made a point uh, after we'd had a similar conversation i made a point of saying to them as they were playing it you know like someone drew that someone like wrote that little bit of dialogue and that you know just trying to point out to them that this is made up of lots of different things you know they love drawing and that kind of thing it's hard for them a to like conceptualize like programming a game but they can understand that someone drew you know link Mm. um and then because they played far too much of it during lockdown they did complete the game (laughs) and then obviously there's there's an exciting like 15 seconds of of like i don't know like a cutscene, and then the credits rolled and they were like what the hell is this i was like that's all the people that I was telling you about. They weren't that interested. They're only eight, but the principle is there. Like the kids need to know that these things are possible to be able to like visualize themselves as doing it. Uh, Definitely. And I, I think sometimes that stands in the way of people making you know, the right kind of decisions about their educational pathways. Um, so I think, you know, perhaps people are very aware of sort of indie game development and, you know, it's a fantastic thing. There's fantastic things that go on in in indie game development. Um, But that's a different kind of skill set. So, you know, if you're an indie developer working for a very small company, then you are likely to need a broad range of skills. So, you know, you're you're a jack of all trades. Um, And Whereas if you want to come and work in the AAA games industry, then you're going to need very specialist skill sets. And I think communicating that um, to people who are aspiring to get into the games industry is something that we've, you know, we've still got some work to do there in terms of helping people to understand that. Yeah, I mean, that, just picking up on that point about you know, getting people uh, to make some of those decisions early on, you know, when they're still at school, when they're you know, when, you know, I mean, there's, obviously, I'm of a generation, you're the same, Jake, I'm sure, where we grew up with 8-bit computers, and the the first, you know, uh, you know, bedrooms to billions, British computer industry, um, and the stigma that was attached to games at the time, and the, the way that games were seen as not work, and not the future, and not a career, and that there's still, I think, that stigma attached, and I, I still hear it from some of the students um, you know that I work with that their families don't really think it's a proper job or you know same with digital media in general really um, and so I mean maybe that will bring us on to talking about Sheffield's games heritage a little bit as well but uh, I was really struck when I uh, the BBC released um, all of the content from their uh, I can't remember what it was called their original program you know that Acorn developed the BBC Micro for back in the 80s their whole you know computers in schools education program and all of the all of the learning materials that they produced and used to show on BBC two for people to record and all of the all of that material was has been digitized and, and has uh, been um, uh, published by BBC archive and you, you look through all of that content and there's nothing in it about games there's the, they, they never used games as as a as a, a motivation or a lever to get kids to engage with computers which if you, is insane if you think about it. It just shows how deep that stigma was, that games is not the, was not the point of computing at all, that computing was about, was about work and databases and, and all these other, you know, these other applications and that all the game stuff is just frivolous. And yet, obviously, to every kid in the 80s, you know, that was into computers, gaming was everything. It was just the most incredibly exciting thing and the most creative thing. And computers were these incredible creative machines that you could do anything with 
Um, do you think that's still the fact, you know, the case nowadays? Or I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should let Ivan answer that one. He's he's of a younger generation. To... Well, um, when I was growing up, um, I had a similar kind of thing where games were just seen as kind of frivolous and there's no job in that. And I, I kind of said, I guarantee you I'll get a job in this somehow, in some way. <laughs> but, um, but from everybody... I know around now, like I see my nieces and nephews and they all see game development as a as something they want to get into, like which is kind of kind of incredible. There, there, there's a lot more kind of um coding um kind of things for younger people now. So they, they kind of see that there's there's paths there and, and they see it's possible. But I, I do see like um especially my nieces, they're they're very interested in, in getting into game development. Like they're they're actively trying to make little game demos and stuff but um i don't know about the the wider <laughs> the world of there's massive opportunity these days um a, a huge number of different applications programming environments um development environments art packages um that kids can use and it, it's almost that there's too many um mm -hmm. particularly from an educational perspective i think teachers really struggle to know what tools to teach um, and to just you know to stay on top of all the different tools so whereas back in the 1980s you know it was just a case of okay you had a BBC micro at school you turned it on there was basic get on with it um, these days that you know there's a huge number of choices and then if you happen to try and access one that's that goes through a web page that's got the word game in it, you'll probably find that your uh, your school website blocks access to it. Um, just as, just, you know, it does that with everything that's got the word game in it. So code dojos, they seem to be quite good though for getting them kind of more focused from what I've seen. I wanted to pick up on something we very briefly touched on a moment ago, which is Sheffield's heritage in games, but um, do we still have what it takes as a city and, and in the region? You know, we had had the pedigree that Jake was talking about, but what about now? What? How do each of you see the local games scene? Well, for, I mean, from my perspective, one hundred percent, yes. I mean, it's never been bigger. I, I think, you know, if you go back to the nineteen eighties, then. Yes, Gremlin Graphics was uh, a very sort of big um, and influential company in the games industry at that point. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people that are still around today, some of the senior people at Sumo came from that kind of heritage. And, and it's fantastic to have that kind of background uh, and history in Sheffield. But Sumo these days uh, has been around for longer than Gremlin was ever around and employs far more people than Gremlin ever did. Um, so, uh, you know, so Sumo Digital, I mean, eight studios across the UK, studios in America and in India. Um, and, you know, it's headquartered here in Sheffield. And I think that's a real sort of plus for the city, for the region, not just for the games industry either. I mean, you know, if you talk to people just in the digital industries in general uh, in the region, you will find people who have historic connections with the games industry and who have gone on to start companies in other areas or, or work for employers in other areas using their, their skills that they learned in the games industry in the first mm. place. And I suppose for me, you know, if you go back to when I was back in universities, um, to me, that was a massive bonus for, you know, the skill sets around games. The fact that if you learn to be a game programmer, the kind of skills that you're learning there are not just applicable within the games industry, but much, much wider. Um, and I think it's for me, it's it's that kind of skill set in schools that I'd like to see pushed and encouraged. Um, and it was exactly the kind of thing that uh, Ivan and I were trying to do in, in the Games Britannia Festival um, uh, back uh, back some years ago. So that's interesting because uh, we went out to the Sheffield Digital Community and asked them if they had any questions for the two of you. And one of the questions was, you know, what is the future of Games Britannia? Is it going to continue happening? <laughs> Do we know? <laughs> it's, it's it's a bit difficult during COVID, really. Um, but it, I suppose um, the last we left was just before COVID. And I suppose some of those projects that I've been talking about uh, have taken up a lot of my um, my personal time for to get them delivered. 
but uh, the computing department um, are looking to continue with um, Games Britannia and they see it as very important. So I don't think it's, it's uh, going away, but it just might be um, a little while before uh, things pick back up again with yeah. the COVID and the way it is and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chris? There's a, so the, the BGI, uh, the British Games Institute that run the National Video Game Museum, they started a new um, uh, games, a skills summit for the games industry, didn't they? Um, yeah. Is, does that, I mean, it, uh, what's the difference between Games Britannia and that skills summit? Oh, okay. So, I mean, Games Britannia was uh, essentially workshops, hands-on workshops for schools that addressed you know, exactly that kind of range of different roles that went that go on in the games industry. So, you know, programming workshops, art workshops, design workshops, sound workshops. Um, and, um, you know, that was aimed at students, at, at uh, schools. schools. Um, whereas Games Edu is, uh, as a conference, is um, that's aimed at the academics. So it's about bringing together academics teachers from across the country to discuss you know how games is taught as a discipline and the wow. kind of skills that they um should be teaching keeping people up to date with current trends and you know sharing good good uh, good practice and knowledge in that area all right so they kind of feed into each other then i guess uh definitely i mean i think uh games britannia um at certain stages has pulled in schools from across mm. the uk i mean you know there used to be schools traveling up from London to sort of take part in some of the workshops that we did. Um, and, you know, the Games Day Conference is, is, is similar in that it's pulling people in from across, across the country. I mean, you know, Sheffield's a, a very central place um, and it, it was good to be to do that sort of back in the real world, I think, in the first year it ran. But mm. obviously this last year and probably next year, it's, it's going to be virtual. And, and that has its own sort of opportunities and, and uh, advantages as well. Um, so it's interesting to see how that's sort of progressing going forward. So I just wanted to come back. We were talking about, um, you know, is Sheffield still a, a gaming centre? And we know we've got the, the huge success of Sumo. We've got some very successful indie games uh, studios as well, companies like Bone Loaf. What do each of you think about how do we how do we grow the next sumo and how do we grow more successful indies like Bone Loaf? What what do you think would need to happen here to create that? Well, I mean, I certainly think um, that a sense of community is is really helpful. And again, I, I think we're all sort of lamenting not being able to go back in the physical world and, and interact with people. And, and I think the BGI, uh, the National Video Game Museum, um, that site, I, I think for me, when, when that moved to Sheffield, that was very exciting in terms of becoming a sort of centre of gravity for the games industry in the region. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's what will help sort of inspire uh, a growth of new companies and um, uh, new games and new ideas in, in our region. I think it's those sort of networks, those groups, people talking to each other, um, you know, being aware of the opportunities that are out there. Um, that's that that community aspect is really helped by having a centre in Sheffield. And I really, really hope that at the end of this the situation we're in, that's still there and thriving and, and something that, uh, you know, people can rally round and, and support um, once we're all allowed out of our houses again. Mm. I was going to say, you could also see some success that's happening now. Like, it's just going to bring more success. Like, you know, when you're growing up and you see a company or indies, they're doing games, making popular games, and you kind of say, "God, this is in my doorstep." Like, it could actually, I could be involved in this, and I, I think success brings success a lot of the time. It's definitely true for my kids. I mean, a bit, a bit like Ian, you know, from from quite an early age, I made wanted to make sure that they knew that games were made by people. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the the ability, I mean, you know, they they've been to sumo, they they're they've played sumo games, they love gang beasts they've been to bone loaf's office and you know they've they've had exposure to these things they know it's not something that happens elsewhere it's something that happens right here 
is something that they can be part of. I think that makes a massive difference. And I think the games industry is is much more open. And you're right, the National Video Games Museum is is a really big part of that. It's something that you can actually go in and interact with and engage with. You feel like you can connect with it. And then all the other events that have happened, um, you know, the Riverside um, Games Nights that that Sumo put on, um, the 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 podcast that started last year, I know it's been in hiatus for a while, but I'm sure it'll start up again. The Sheffield Games Collective doing a doing a regular podcast, um, Meltdown, the the esports lounge, um, Extra Life Gaming Cafe that is set up with all of their retro games uh, in a cafe. There's a there's starting to be a community of things that families and kids and and players can all kind of get involved in as well, not just What's the museum it? itself. Without wanting to soil the tone of this conversation is there not an issue of money what about funding you've talked we talk the answers so far in like community and seeing other people do good stuff isn't that like often the problem that you just we we're, we're relying on us to do it <laughs> is there is there a, like a uh, more funding that we could come from somewhere could it be some like the politics of the city or the region anything like that that could uh, help i think there is sometimes uh an attitude that the games industry is sort of, oh, it's doing fine. It'll, it'll do fine on its own. And, and um, I, I do feel sometimes that perhaps the games industry doesn't get the same kind of recognition and support as the film industry. Um, I mean, you know, they're different industries. They have different sort of ways in which, um, you know, they work and uh, you, you can't have it exactly the same way for both. But I, I do think that the games industry uh, could be recognised more for you know some of the interesting and exciting things that go on, like Games Britannia, or even you know like Ivan's research um, that are bringing you know real benefits to, to society, um, and uh, you know getting that backing in, getting that recognition of it will all help in terms of you know the industry going forward. Marvelous. Well, I think we're there's only really time for one more very important question, and again, this is from the audience, and I assume this is for you, Jake. Will we ever see Zool Planets released? <laughs> uh, well, hello, Mark. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think you would have to speak to uh, Ian Stewart about that one. Um, Ian Stewart, uh, who obviously founded Gremlin um, back in the, the 1980s, um, is the IP holder for Zool. Um, so, uh, I mean, uh, perhaps I need to give a bit of context here. So, Zool Planets was a concept which a group of students came up with about eight years ago within the Steel Minion studio that I ran at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, and they developed it into a really nice looking pitch. Um, and uh, But nonetheless, it, it, it sort of didn't really go any further at that stage. I think the team went off to take part in Dare to be Digital, as I, as I remember, uh, which is a big student competition. Um, and I think their careers took off from there. But, um, but yes, the, the project itself didn't go much further. Um, I do actually remember seeing so one of the students that worked on that, I think now works for the company that did the the rendered sequences for Sackboy, because going back to the credits, I saw his name in the credits. <laughs> so it's amazing how these things come around. But the short answer is uh, you'll have to talk to Ian. <laughs> Thank you for answering that question earnestly, Jake. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, before, uh, one more very important question, of course, is like, what's your favourite game? What's the best game ever? Blood, Bloodborne is mine anyway. Bloodborne. <laughs> Either that or Outer Wilds. I mean, I, I can honestly say that our favourite game in our house at the moment is one of our games. So, you know, Sackboy, uh, we've not had more fun as a family playing that. Sounds like I'm just plugging our own games, but genuinely. <laughs> it only uh, launched a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? <laughs> no, it's, it's great. we're about 30% through, um, but we're on track. It'll be done before Christmas. Um, having amazing fun with that as a family at the moment. That's all right, Jake. Everybody's favourite book in our house is mine, so it's fine. <laughs> um <laughs> thank you both for for joining us I, I loved hearing about all of the things that you've been doing and uh, and ivan and lovely to speak to you again and um uh, and jake good luck with the academy is there anywhere that we uh, should be sending people to is are you looking for new recruits jake is there a, a website etc so we have a website uh which is uh, www.sumo-academy.com and you can have a look on there um and uh, sort of we'll be looking at our next intake for that um sort of later 
you know, quarter quarter two sort of uh, next year. So people can keep an eye on that and sign up to a, a, a list there if they're interested. Thank you yeah, both. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, time for some brief news and events. Not an awful lot to talk about today, but uh, what we will talk about is very important as always. First of all, we do need to know, and I think from you, Mel, how the festival went. Really, really well. Um, considering the circumstances and how much we had to change our plans and readjust, I was just blown away with how many people got involved and we had over 30 events running during the week in the end really eclectic all kinds of different things going on um i've had really good feedback from people about the events that they went to the tech expo which tim latham from data trainer pulled together was a big success he had over 200 people registered for that uh and you know really good attendance at all of the different sessions during the afternoon. Um, then, you know, there were some fun meetups. There was just all kinds of good stuff. And for me, it, it, once again, it was just great to see the community come together and help make something happen because really to create a platform on which the festival could start to become a thing. And that seems to be working. The platform seems to be doing what it needs to do and people are getting onto that and, and being part of it. So I'm, I was just thrilled. Um, I probably made people may have seen me on social media being all over enthusiastic about it. We're starting to think about next year um, in the hope that we won't be having to do it completely virtual but wondering what that might look like and we are still planning to launch the app with the augmented reality stuff around the city but again now that we know that we're going to be in tier three when we come out of lockdown we have to think about the timing of that and when it would be the responsible thing to do Uh, but if you're interested in the content seeing some of it. Um, There's some absolutely beautiful content that's been put together for the app. You can see previews on the festival website. The last thing I would say is that if you did go to an event, we've got a feedback survey going around at the moment, and we'd just really like you to take a couple of minutes and just fill that out so that we can learn what worked, what didn't, what can we do better next year. Fantastic. That's so nice to hear. It's a stressful thing to uh, do something like that with all the changes, even with a bit of time to know it's coming. It's still mm. you know, really nice to hear that it went well. Yeah, it was, we had our Geek Breakfast, our festival special Geek Breakfast on the, on the Friday, where we invited people to come in and talk about their experience. And, and we had so many people, we had, we had loads of people turn up on Zoom and a really long conversation about things that people had gone and enjoyed. It was really, it was really nice to kind of, you know, hear from people that have been to things that you weren't able to go to and find out, you know, what had been going on. Yeah, I came away from that Geek Bretty with two pages of notes. Right. <laughs> it doesn't usually happen, so. <laughs> well, that's good, actually, because um, I was going to write something up about it and I haven't had any time. So. <laughs> There's a lot of things. Okay, so that you just offloaded that job to me, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Sorry, who am I kidding? That was never going to happen anyway. I'm too busy. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I should I should at least go through the chat and pick out all of the uh, all of the links that people mentioned and referred to, and put those in the Geek Brecky channel on Slack. Great stuff, uh, Chris. Uh, Smart Sheffield, it's back. Yes, it is. Yeah, so Smart Sheffield is the is the meetup um, that we ran every two months up until March um, that looks at urban innovation and technology in the city. So addressing city challenges with with technology, um, and uh, I yeah we I used to um, used to run it face to face. Obviously, um, it was sponsored by Arup and by Pitchin at the at, uh, University of Sheffield and Creative Space Management, who run the Electric Works. So it was always a very kind of place based thing around hospitality and food and drink and short talks and lots of networking. Um, and so during, you know, during COVID, we haven't run any, but it's now gone on so long that um, Pitchin, one, you know, suggested that we actually do an online one and, and do one before Christmas. So we've got one scheduled for Monday week, the 7th, 
Um, and we, we, we want to use it as a platform to look to the future to, to kind of, you know, before the end of the year, what's, what's happening next year? What have we learned about, about, you know, the pandemic? So we've got, you know, several projects and, uh, uh, and sources of data. So, you know, the uh, Urban Observatory, um, you know, the Urban Flows Observatory and Pitchin and companies like The Flow, you know, they, they have data that they've been able to track how, the, how COVID has affected the city. So we want to kind of see, find out from them what they've, what they've seen, but also we want to hear about what happens next year. So how are these projects continuing you know, Pitchin is is looking for a kind of legacy next year as their as their three year initial you know original funding comes to an end. Similar for Urban Flows, um, we've also got IoT Tribe North. So IoT Tribe are running their third accelerator up in Barnsley. They're starting with um, a kind of a onboarding of new startups in the Internet of Things and kind of city connectivity space. Uh, in January, so it'd be really interesting to hear from them about what their plans are and how it is that they're, you know, what what was a very localized accelerator is now basically a, a virtual accelerator, but still based in Barnsley. So they're engaging with startups from other parts of the world. Um, yeah, and then basically we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep to the same format as as before. So. So short talks for about an hour or so. Unfortunately, we can't offer food and drink like we would ordinarily. Um, but then we want people to network. So we're using Airmeet as the platform. That's the idea. So um, Airmeet Air has a stage. So we have sequential talks. No Q&A because we don't want everybody to be sitting and waiting while questions get asked and answered. If you have questions, you can talk to the people who are speaking you know, in the networking and chat with them afterwards. But um, Airmeet has got this kind of social lounge where you can see a representation of tables and chairs around them on screen and who's at each of the tables. And you can click on an empty chair and go and join that conversation. Um, and so you want people to kind of move around and get involved in some of the conversations. And if there's people that they heard talk about things that they're interested in, to go and have a chat with them about it and ask some questions there. So there'll be like a pause for people to get refreshments and then come back and do a net networking for an hour or a little bit longer or however long people want to in the evening, basically. And, and when is this again, Chris? Uh, Monday week. So uh, Monday, the 7th of December, uh, and we'll start at quarter to six. So uh, uh, 5.45 start, uh, you know, for a arrival for a six o'clock start. Um, and we're also going to have a meeting of the Things Network Sheffield, which is the community-run Internet of Things platform that uh, that covers Sheffield. And uh, that will start at five o'clock. So people in, interested in the Things Network come to the pre-meeting at five, basically. And then the Great. meetup proper starts at six. And now, I now also want to know if anyone has ever played musical chairs in Airmeet. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know i don't know if you can take chairs away or, but that maybe, would be so cool <laughs> yeah that's true but you basically you'd need like you'd need extra accounts to fill up chairs that the, the, the contestants wouldn't be able to sit in them he's <laughs> just hit on a billion dollar idea now i know right yeah yeah it's copyright mel canarek 2020 <laughs> I, I just hope it works <laughs> people can actually hear each other um, and the, the only other thing to talk about uh, in this week's episode is is uh, a blog post that we put together on the website, which is titled Responding to the Pandemic Through Innovation and Creativity. Um, but we'd like to point you towards it because it's got uh, a number of examples, some of which we've talked about on previous episodes, but a number of examples of uh, Sheffield uh, tech companies or digital uh, companies um, uh, doing some great stuff during um, lockdown or just during the last nine months during this year, I guess, uh, where they've used technology to help people, uh, uh, I guess, live and thrive, survive, work, etc. Um, through the pandemic. Um, do we want to talk about any of those specific examples here or should we just say, go and find it? Go find it. Go find it. Mm-hmm. Go find it. Um, so yes, that's on the Sheffield Digital website, uh, sheffield.digital. And uh, you'll find a whole list of companies who've done some ace stuff. And I think that's it. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour. It's probably enough. <laughs> yeah. People are tired of us now. 
Indeed. Yeah. So um, I can hear the weekend rushing towards me. Yes. Uh, I'm 40 tomorrow. <gasps> oh, happy birthday for tomorrow, Ian. Yeah. Thank you. The big 4-0, you baby. <laughs> I know, I know. A can... decade you've got ahead. It's very exciting. And my daughter's one, so it's slightly ridiculous. This will be the first oh. time. Uh, when it, the 20th of November last year was quite stressful. It's quite a stressful birthday. I remember it, yes. Um, so this will be the first year that I get to actually celebrate with her. Ah, oh, wonderful. <laughs> mostly me, mostly me celebrating, I think, this time. She can have the rest. I hope she's brought you a nice present. I'll be very cross with her if not. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I'm going to disappear into the future to tell people about events and uh, new members and things like that. Have a great birthday, Ian. Thank Happy you. Happy birthday, Ian. Right, just enough time for me to tell you about some of the events coming up in the next couple of weeks before the end of the year. On Monday the 7th, we have Smart Sheffield. You've heard all about that already. Um, that's going to be excellent, I'm sure. The following day, on Tuesday the 8th, we have the Festive Tech Tea with the uh, Sheffield Women in Tech Meetup. And then on Wednesday the 9th, it's My HR Toolkit Webinar, Further Furlough Extensions at the Implications for Businesses. On the 10th, Thursday the 10th, it is Cybersecurity, the Growing Risk for Manufacturers. That's an event by the AMRC. And then the following week, on the 16th, we're getting close to Christmas, Wednesday the 16th, we have the Sheffield Sustainability Network Christmas Networking Event. It's a lot of networks in one event title, but you should go. On the 17th, Thursday the 17th, it is the world-famous, never been done before, but still world-famous, Sheffield Digital Virtual Festive Pub Quiz. I suggest you be there or be entirely square. And that's it for the year. Unless someone pops anything into the events calendar before now and then, you can check yourself, of course, sheffield.digital slash events to find out. Um, but that's it. That's all we have to share. But before I go completely, we have time to tell you about the latest members of Sheffield Digital. These are the marvellous folk who are keeping the lights on. We have, uh, on the company side of things, KDA Web Services Limited. I might have mentioned them in the last episode, but quite frankly, I can't remember. And for being a member, you get two mentions, possibly. They joined on the 13th of November. And then on the individual side of things, we have Ross Bray, who joined on the 25th of November. Thank you for joining, Ross. And that's it. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you should do so in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you prefer to subscribe to podcasts in or at or to. And um, you can find that more on the website by going to sheffield.digital slash podcast, where you'll also find a player, fancy player, that includes all of the episodes that we've recorded so far. Lots of great interviews. Feel free to go back and listen to all of them, every single one. They're great. And um, until next time, we shall say goodbye.